need your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. Hello and welcome to Unequal Sequel. My name is Dave and I'm one of two hosts of this Wizpop fantastic podcast. And I'm Rich and I'm the second host of this Wizpop fantastic <laughs> podcast. That's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> Think of me as Al Pacino to Dave's Robert De Niro, just because we're both legends. Hoo-ah! The premise of Unequal Sequel is very simple. We ask our guests for their best ever sequel, worst ever sequel, and finally their dream sequel. And of course, we've got to often drift off and just have some chats about movies in general. Uh, we also have to point out that we do spoil movies because we mm. talk about them in quite in-depth detail. Yeah, yeah. On today's episode, we are joined by Ian Nathan. Ian Nathan is a brilliant film writer. He has written some fantastic books all about movies and the people that make them. He is a previous editor-in-chief of Empire Magazine and a general film encyclopedia of a person. We're very excited to sit down with Ian and chat all things sequels with him. These are Ian Nathan's Unequal Sequels. Enjoy! What is your earliest memory of getting excited about a sequel? That is a very good question. I think I I would probably say a Bond film, although, again, arguments about sequels and whether they're sequels or not, notwithstanding. I think my first perception of uh, sequels coming along was watching Bond films probably in the late 1970s and James Bond will return being at the end of, of the credits. And if you go back, I think, to something like Moonraker, the Roger Moore era, they named the next film. It wasn't just James Bond will return. It was James Bond will return in For Your Eyes Only. So that kind of added to it. So we already knew there was obviously a script being written and production cycle was underway. So I think my first proper memory of anticipation in that respect, maybe Bond. The other one, of course, is, is Star Wars. And I'm exactly that era that I saw Star Wars. But I didn't know about Empire Strikes Back until much later in the cycle so i must have heard about it 1980 it came out in 1981 yeah because yeah you know, this is pre-internet pre-anything pre you know, there were very the few glory days. the glory days where we didn't know about things so you heard it on the playground rumor mill and that i remember very clearly and i remember very clearly uh, a kid who always seemed to be in the know you always one kid in your playground who was in the know whose yeah. dad worked in the movie business maybe somehow and he was telling me that Han Solo was going to die in the second Star Wars film. Now, at the age of seven or eight, that's quite distressing news. And I wouldn't believe him, but it stuck with me. And of course, in history, it tells us that Harrison Ford constantly wanted George Lucas to kill him off in, in those yeah, yeah. films. So maybe this kid's dad did know something that, that we didn't. But uh, thankfully, at least he, he lived through the, the first Star Wars films. We get quite often stories like, Getting access to trailers is so easy now. But back yeah. in the early days, you had to actually go see a film to watch the trailers. Yeah. Is, is that something you did for Empire Strikes Back? Did you get whisperer of a, a trailer being shown? Or Gosh, It's a long time ago. Um, mm. No, I don't particularly remember trailers uh, as such. Um, I obviously did see them. Um, but I don't remember it being an Empire Strikes Back trailer. I remember my dad seemed to know more than I did. And he said, Empire Strikes Back is coming out you know this yeah, next yeah. weekend let's go and see it of course that was you know a huge treat at the time 
I can't imagine being in a cinema watching Empire Strikes Back for the first time. <laughs> because you know, it's so innocent. Um, and it's very hard to project backwards. But at that time, you know, there wasn't hype. And there wasn't the rumor mill. Such a thing as a spoiler. It didn't even you know, compute. Yeah. So we had no conception of the secrets that would be unveiled. You, know, you went into cinema just for the experience of it. You know, I wanted more of that Star Wars-y stuff. That's what you wanted. You didn't sort of try and prejudge it. I mean, you're 70 years old, I suppose, but you didn't sort of go in thinking, oh, where are the characters going to go? What will happen? What kind yeah. of film do I want? You have such open-mindedness at that age. You just want that excitement of being in the cinema with that film. And I don't even remember being shocked by the Darth Vader revelation. It, you know, you, th- you think that would just blow your mind at the time. But yeah. I think I was just more interested in lightsabers. Lightsabers are cool. So you, the feeling when you came out of it, do you remember that? Just you, was there was there rumours for a third one at that point? Did you know Return of the Jedi was coming, or was it? At I that think point? because of the nature of the end of that film, and yeah. you know, Star Wars is almost a complete film. You could stop it there, and the job was done. You know, the enemy was defeated, and the good guys had won. But the end, the second film, obviously ends on a hanging note. I mean, literally, Han Solo is is trapped and gone, and you know his. His circumstance, it was quite weird for, for kids, you know, like, what the hell's going on here? So it almost seemed at that point you needed a sequel because the story felt incomplete, which is a very unusual experience to come out of a, of a film with. Because you know, the idea of series of films, every Bond film was a unit unto itself. It ended with the bad guys defeated. So that was fine. And you knew it would come back again and, and do the same again. But with Empire Strikes Back, I think it was the first time I'd ever experienced sort of doubt and uncertainty you know coming out of a film yeah so yeah that was highly unusual and that sort of created in your head a necessity and i think at that point see i'm getting older and the world is starting to sort of generate film magazines and coverage and i think the things like the, the evening news started to cover things like star wars so you got into you know television reports on return of the jedi is underway shooting in under great secrecy, but not so under great secrecy in the desert. Um, so I do remember that anticipation of, of a third part very clearly, much more than any any kind of second part. Yeah. Oh, amazing. I love talking to Star Wars about people. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's just it's strange. Yeah. You know, again, it's sort of an age thing, I suppose. But you know, I saw Star Wars innocently. In the sense that I didn't knew nothing about it the first time I was set, you know, very small and got taken to see it. So oh. you, you can't imagine a world where stars didn't exist beforehand, and it was just no. introduced to us. And, oh. and that's what it was. It was there. It was, and now of course it occupies such a large chunk of culture that it's impossible to believe in a world without Star Wars. Hmm. I think I'm from a generation that saw like Return of the Jedi first. I'm a little right. So uh, that's why I think Return of the Jedi is still my favourite Star Wars. But by that point, I kind of knew the spoils, the what had come before. But yeah, I yeah, we grew it. up. We grew up in a world where Star Wars existed already, Dave, didn't we? Yeah, you know, Star Wars is older than we are. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think. I mean, I was alive when when uh, Empire came out, but my parents certainly weren't taking me to the cinema at that point. I was, yeah, under a year old. Right. So I think, you know, yeah, I think Jedi is the first one I remember, but Empire is definitely my favourite. It's, it's kind of interesting that there's a point, if you're a big movie fan, where you start looking at newspaper adverts and there's a kind of point where you move on from your parents decide to take you to something and that's the ritual yeah. to 
you choose to go and see something and demand to see it. It's a kind of shift around about sort of eight, nine years old, maybe 10 years old. And that mine starts to come in with Raiders of the Lost Ark that I remember very clearly uh, the the Raiders of the Lost Ark poster in the local newspaper and just pointing at it to my parents, almost like gesturing, (laughs) this is what we are going to do today. Whatever plans you have, whatever you thought was happening, it isn't because this thing, and it was just the advert. Again, I obviously recognized Harrison Ford and just the nature of the ad of Raiders of the Ark communicates a lot to you. you know, yeah, yeah. Like, this looks exciting. I need to see this. Otherwise, I'm going to burst. And this is going to be all sorts of trouble at home. And they did, thankfully, take me. They, they understood where my head was at. And if I got into that mood, they had to take me along. And this kind of carried on. This is what invented my whole career. You know, the next oh, one. The next one, funny, you go along and you hit Blade Runner. And I'm about 12 and I demanded to see that. My mum had to take me in. And that that perplexed me. That was different. That was, I came out thinking, well, I don't quite understand that. And, and felt kind of strange after that one in a way I hadn't felt before. But uh, there was a kind of you know, chain reaction. What is your best sequel? Best sequel? You asked me this beforehand, to have, yeah. have one ready in mind. And, and I actually thought quite hard about this because it's a really hard question. But I, I, I'm going very. I find best anything's difficult. People go, yeah. You meet people at parties and tell them what you do, and, and they, they kind of immediately go, oh, what's, what's your favourite film? See, that's a natural response. And I don't have one. You know, I have hundreds of favourite films because it's a huge world. I albums and, and books. You you don't really have one. You have all the things that make you who you are. And that you know, sequels that 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 you know really applied. And but I knew you needed one, and so I. <laughs> So it was no good me sitting here going, and, and, you know, we'll be here all day. You can can have some honourable mentions, though, if you like. You know, you can certainly put those in. (laughs) But obviously, I I started to apply the rules that people apply. If it's it's a one story divided up, as in The Godfather, as in The Lord of the Rings... Uh, I thought, no, that, that they aren't technically sequels. I, I kind of started thinking, what is a sequel? And I, and I kind of honed in on, on James Cameron, who kind of talked about this idea of a sequel is almost a starting again. You take what a film did and you start again and, and redo it, but differently, you know, same but different. Mm-hmm. And you apply, you know, you, you take what all the fans want, but you tell a new story. But there was that kind of starting again thing is, is important. Se- you know, s- sequels don't depend on the first film you know, ending and offering them as offering up the game, as it were. Mm. So the, the ball isn't necessarily thrown forward. So Empire Strikes Back, in a way, is more of a sequel than other, you know, Return of the Jedi is, because Star Wars finishes. They had no idea they were going to make another one. So Empire Strikes Back came along. And then everyone, you know, Lucas started claiming, oh, I've written all these stories, and it's one great saga. And So at that point, I would say Empire Strikes Back is a sequel, but Return of the Jedi isn't a sequel, because it, it's... It's the same story as, as part two, whereas I think Empire Strikes Back is a different story in the same universe as part one. Same characters. I know you can sort of stitch in this overarching uh, saga of a family, <laughs> and once you get into the prequels and all that, and it all gets very murky. It's all about Darth Vader, and I don't know what else. But at the pure point at which those films were, were made, one is a sequel and one isn't. So I, along those principles, I thought Aliens because uh, Aliens is very much a sequel. Mm, yeah. And yeah, Alien existed and ended, and six six years went past, or seven years went past Five. without. It's, it's 79, 86, isn't it, uh, Aliens? Mm. So in terms of probably putting it together, maybe five or six years they started to develop it but there was no prospect of a sequel at all they, they'd moved on and, and that was a time when when sequels weren't really done 
in Hollywood, especially sci-fi sequels. Star Wars was the exception. You had Alien and you moved on to, diff to different things. Very different Hollywood to now. Hmm. So I thought Aliens. Then I thought that's too obvious. You probably had about 80 people on your not podcast one. who've done Aliens. Nope. Because <laughs> not one. Oh, no, my, I thought, no everyone, one. <laughs> I thought yeah. everyone would do Aliens because it's sort of the, meant to be the high watermark of what sequels can do. It took a masterpiece and it did its own thing with it and created an equal masterpiece. Very different films, same universe, in touch with each other, but perfect relationship in terms of We sequel. do often use Aliens as the example of how to make a great sequel. Yeah. Because mm. it takes the concept and then makes it different, almost a different genre, essentially, for Aliens than that to Alien. Yeah, absolutely. A haunted house story to action movie. Yeah. The switch. And the switch in, what's really interesting, I think it's a switch in tones of a director. In some ways, all you needed for Aliens to be a sequel is just for James Cameron to take hold of it. Because if Ridley Scott had done it, and he did want to do it back in 1980, 1981, he did propose to Fox he'd do another one. And Fox were like, what are sequels? Why do we do this? And it all got confused. That would have been slightly different. That would be more of a saga, I think. Mm. And I think that because um, Cameron came along and he had, he loved Alien, it's one of the films that inspired him. <coughs> Excuse me. He... Because he's a very ethos and his very way of going about making films and his arrogance, his wonderful arrogance that he said, well, it really made a fantastic film, but it's just my prequel. I'm making the, the film that, that counts. And that's what makes James Cameron James Cameron. That was the point when it became the, the perfect sequel because he applied his aesthetic to it and his way of thinking and his way of storytelling. And he did because he's a very smart guy. You know, he, he looked at Alien and said, what makes this work? There are kind of really just three things. The alien, the, the, that creature, because of obvious reasons. Ripley, because it's Ripley's story, and he understood that. And he understands every film needs a human heart. And it's the aesthetic. It's the clammy, future space, noir aesthetic, which he kind of knew he couldn't do as well as Scott, because Scott has this fabulous eye. So he said, well, I'm just going to do this and run and obviously he wrote his Vietnam in space and the Marines and all that we know about made a fantastic movie that holds up to this day but anyway I thought that was too obvious a choice oh <laughs> I thought you guys would oh god not aliens again we've talked about aliens so I went and said and I, I do kind of think this is true and it's making a bit of reaction out of people listening but I think Terminator 2 Judgment Day is maybe a better sequel than Aliens I'm not saying it's necessarily a better film and I don't want to make the choice between them anyway, because I'm, I'm greedy and I get to have them both. Uh, yeah. But I think Terminator 2 is more extraordinary in terms of being a sequel, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. I think if you ask most people what the best ever sequel is, pe people will say Terminator 2, Aliens, Godfather, Part 2. You know, that they'll be the list that people come out with. Strangely enough, you're the first person to pick Terminator 2 as well. <laughs> no, <laughs> he's, he's the second, he's the second. Yeah. Second. Oh, you're the second, sorry. Cameron no, sorry. No, you are the from second. Unilad picked, picked of Terminator course, 2. Yeah, Cameron picked, yeah. But it, it's such a personal choice. So why why is Terminator 2 your personal choice for being best sequel? Well, one of the reasons was uh, the ingenuity. Yeah. I think what sets um, Cameron's filmmaking apart is he, he moves into genres that are very obvious, but he's ingenious with them. He's ingenious with kind of archetypes and basic storytelling modes. So he gives us the kind of, if you want to be a bit artifarty about it, he gives you the kind of collective conscious Jungian thing that we all you know, buy into, subconsciously or not. You know, he hones in on things we understand primal, you know, on the kind of primal yeah. level, 
mothers and daughters, married couples, peril, absolute peril, the most survival element, you know, um, all his films, I think, fundamentally about survival. You watch the original Terminator, and it's just about primal survival. It's an extraordinary, most poetic rendition of the chase. You know, how do you keep going? Um, now, I watched, I watched Halloween Kills yesterday, and I kept thinking back to Halloween, as you do. What a brilliant primal movie Halloween is. Of course, Halloween is, is the Terminator. They are the same. They're versions of one another. It's, you know, the, the, the impossible killer, you know, the woman in peril but who has the wherewithal to survive. You know, so they really kind of tune into something that's absolutely kind of wired into us as our beings, you know, fight or flight, all those kind of things. And Cameron has an instinct for that. That's why his films make billions and billions of dollars. You know, he takes these ridiculous ideas, planets, boats, all these things, and he just hones in on things we all get, no matter where you live, no matter who you are, you get survival. You get, you just understand it. And, he, and he's so good at it. He's a virtuoso then on playing on those things. That's what's brilliant about Aliens. And with Terminator 2, I thought the genius is, and, and, and the kind of, for him, the, the kind of quandary he faced, I think he resisted making a sequel. There were various rights issues as well, but he resisted making a, a sequel because he was redoing himself. And James Cameron's biggest rival is James yeah. Cameron. How do you outdo, how do you outdo yourself? It's, it's a really tricky thing. I mean, Ridley Scott's encountered this problem in his return to the alien universe. It's very hard to outdo yourself when you've made a film as good as The Terminator or Alien. And Cameron sort of sat down. Again, he, he's kind of a, he's a I've been writing about him recently, so he's been in my head quite a lot. And one of the fascinating things about him, he's sort of half storyteller and half engineer, physicist, scientist kind of guy. So he comes at sort of things very logically. So when he sat down to write Terminator 2, he said, well, the logical thing to do is uh, you know, do more of the same. That's the sequel rule. I'll just bring back Arnie because he was now essential to, to the mix. You know, he hadn't been for the first film, but he was now, because it's been a huge hit. And he said, we can just go on another killing spree and there'll be a different set of humans. But he kind of sat down and he went through ideas he had um, with his great friend, William Wisher, who's a kind of childhood friend, uh, who helped him write the first one. And they kind of went through a list together. And they went through, interestingly, they went through all the things that were in terrible sequels to come. They thought about the future wars. They thought about a female Terminator. And they kind of dismissed all these things, too gimmicky, too expensive, yeah. <laughs> kind of not the point. And Cameron realized there were certain things you had to do. Uh, you had to bring Arnie back. You had to be in present day LA. LA was part of the story. It's something I think every sequel, maybe with the exception of Terminator 3, has completely forgotten you know, every further Terminator sequel. They are LA stories. They are contemporary LA stories. That's Cameron's science fiction. He doesn't do, apart from Avatar, far-flung science fiction. His best science fiction has kind of got an immediacy about it. Even mm. Aliens feels like a, you know, Vietnam in space. It feels very immediate and very contemporary in its own strange way. So they knew it had to be LA. And he knew, and because this is Cameron, it had to be exponentially better. So that meant the threat had to be bigger. The scale had to be bigger. You had to move the filmmaking itself on you know, this is what you have to do in, in sequels but what makes him brilliant as a filmmaker the ingenuity i mentioned was he thought i can't do terminator again i'm unwilling to said what really makes a sequel work and i wonder and i'm sure people can argue but i wonder if he's really the first person to truly fathom the algorithm out of what makes a sequel great rather than just formulaic is you had to have that other element of ingenuity yeah. and you have to change the story you have to kind of do the, you know, do the same thing again, but different. 
And that's very hard you know, because stories are you know, fit, fit kind of routines, especially if you've already developed the routine. So he, he, he kind of thought about you know, the moral problem of the Terminator. He'd been troubled by it. There'd been this reaction to Arnie where everybody cheered him in cinemas in the original film. You know, I'll be back and crashing into the police station, then walking around with his Uzis and everything, killing cops you know, left, right and centre. People had cheered it on. And he'd become, a, you know, ironically, this kind of cult figure. The great thing about the Terminator is that kind of everybody's a hero. You love mm. Reese and Sarah Connor in, in the kind of the simple way, but you love Arnie as the T eight hundred as well because he's just great and cool. And he does all the things you want want to do. You know, he has, you know, doesn't obey any kind of civic responsibility or any kind of social constraints. He just bashes down the door and, and does things because he's a machine. You know, it's just a fabulous idea, but it's troubled Cameron uh, because I mean, there was kind of a moral problem within it. And all his films are kind of strangely quite moral. And maybe apart from the, from the original Terminator, he, he goes, I can't do that. I've got to explore that. And through thinking about that, he came up with this ludicrous proposition. Ridiculous. He said to William Wisher, you know, late one night, what happens if we try and make people cry for a Terminator? You know, if I can make people cry for a machine, then cinema itself will have done something nothing else has done before. Yeah. And actually, I think within that, it says James Cameron thinking, I've done something no one else has ever done before. That and he definitely did do that because I cried yeah. like a baby. <laughs> exactly. You're crying for a washing machine. That's what you're doing. <laughs> and that's, you know, as soon as he started thinking that, then the whole game changes. Then he starts to kind of conceive and logically construct a story. And this famously, there was this original idea or his first idea was and have a bad Arnie and a good Arnie wandering around LA, kind of shooting up and killing things. Yeah, and he was going to bring Sarah Connor back because, you know, she was like Ripley. She was kind of the, the defining human element. And he knew there was a time, I think, when he thought about playing around the, the time-space continuum and bringing Reese back. But then he thought that was too back to the future and he, he didn't yeah. want to do that. I'm glad he didn't do that. Yeah, <laughs> he, he kind of thought about it and then yeah, rejected that proposition. So, yeah, he had the kind of tenants he needed to bang back. And he had this two Arnie's thing. But then he just thought, hey, I think he, he wondered whether it was a bit gimmicky. And he knew he'd have to, like, break one of the yeah. Schwarzeneggers because otherwise he won't be able to tell them apart. And then he had to have Arnie in the makeup chair every day and all sorts of kind of... And then he, they, they came up with the idea of the T-1000, which was kind of an idea that had been lurking since the first film, Liquid Metal. And you know, all the kind of physicists in, in Cameron's brain started to operate. Because he knew he needed... Um, a bad guy that was exponentially worse and was bad enough to make Arnie an underdog. And that, that decision is really interesting. You know, not only is he going to make us cry for a, for a Terminator, he was going to make Arnold Schwarzenegger an underdog, which basically undermined the entire brand of Arnold Schwarzenegger he had helped assemble with the Terminator. Mm. You think of all the films in, in between, there'd been Commando and, and Raw Deal and Predator, you know, this huge multi-million dollar industry based on the fact that Arnie was indomitable. And that was the brand value of Schwarzenegger. And Cameron says, I'm going to prize that open. I'm going to shatter it and I'm going to make him the underdog. I'm going to make you worry yeah. for Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> so, you know, it's a brilliant conception. It's Alice in Wonderland. It's through the looking glass for a sequel. So it's not just do the same again. It's inverted. And did it so well as well. Like it's yeah. just the T one thousand is such a sinister, different kind of baddie. You know, different a different sense of a yeah. of a big bad than than Schwarzenegger's Terminator. Schwarzenegger's Terminator, you felt like 
would come in and shoot everyone and blow the place up. You thought that the T-1000 would cunningly slip under the door and murder you in your sleep kind of thing. It's a different kind of... It's great casting as well. Robert Patrick is so good in that role. He's just unbelievably scary. He is incredibly good. I I think they they found him because he looked ordinary. And it's interesting, again, the original idea with the Terminator was that he'd be like an infiltration unit. I mean, logically, if you were going to send back a killing yeah. machine, you'd have one that blends in with the crowds, who doesn't stand out. You can just <laughs> move in and out secretly like a spy. That's for an assassin-type character. And it was going to be Lance Henriksen, you know, when he first started putting it together. And of course, Lance Henriksen wasn't well-known enough. He had Schwarzenegger. That all changed, and it kind of shifted the whole Terminator thing into something more ironic and funny and, and, and much more of a black comedy. Um, but I think Robert Patrick was a return to that idea of the infiltration unit, mm. that he was just a cop. In fact, it's Stan Winston who, who said to, to Schwarzenegger, OK, we've got this liquid metal terminator, this kind of creation that can take on any shape as long as it's at the same scale as him. But he said there's no human face to it. And the audience need, need a villain to look at. And it was Cameron, being the anti-authoritarian that he is, when I know, <laughs> let's make him a cop. Yeah, so yeah, let's just you know everybody had their kind of suspicions about the cops even even back then that they were kind of thought of poorly and um, the Rodney King element is around here I think we came slightly after but he was you know projecting this kind of social message onto the film as well subtly by having Robert Patrick as a cop supposedly the trustworthy yeah, yeah. guy who can walk into a home and of course anything but he's, he's another machine who's got a job to do effortlessly you know turning in and out of, oh. of liquid do, metal. do you remember when you first saw it what what your initial reactions were i do well you know differently to, to what we were talking about earlier yeah, yeah. You know, there was huge amounts of hype around terminator 2 i mean my, my first conception this is goes back to right to the the beginning of my time as a film journalist and i'd been a student journalist and um i'd got myself by the gift of the gab into a what they, they call multimedias which are very yeah. big press screenings that you, you may have heard of them of the biggest films it's, you guys have been along so i i got talked myself into the total recall press screening oh, it's, it's that summer Nin, um, that's a good screening <laughs> good screening i think 1990 or uh, whenever it was um and they played the teaser trailer beforehand you remember the stan winston teaser trailer which was bum, made bum, before, bum, bum, yeah yeah made before any of the, the main film was shot and was directed by Stan Winston. And I think there may have been rumours, there may have been stuff circulating, but again, no internet. So we didn't really know. And they just played that. And this is a room full of journalists and press and and, and media types, you know, cynics. And boom, 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 you know, there was Arnie put into the, or comes out of the machine, the steam and the sparks, and I'll be back. People started cheering. And that really was, and it was such a, it was a, it was a braggadocio. It was showing off, but brilliant marketing. Mm. Year ahead of the film, uh, they hadn't even begun to shoot yet. So there's so many things they had still to do. But Cameron let it be known that I'm coming and it'll be back. And it was a yeah. really cunning narrative device, if you think about it. It's just, he's become a production line. So, you know, this means any number of sequels can come yeah. you know because you just have to remake an arnie and then send him back in time on some level it's, it's a really it's, great principle that your leading man can essentially die in every in every series yeah. in every um, film and then still come back for the next one yeah i think it's 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 a marketer's dream isn't it, it, it it's fantastic <laughs> and it's interesting because also it kind of breaks a rule if you think about it arnie is playing a different 
character in T2 mm -hmm. than he is in, in T1. He's been programmed differently. This is obviously what we understand. This is the, the emotional element to it. He's a yeah. good Terminator. But it's kind of a, a really cunning redeployment of the kind of core, you know, the core value of the Terminator was the, the ironic killing machine who didn't care. Yeah. Now turned into this kind of touchy-feely Terminator. And Schwarzenegger was really, I think, bemused by Cameron's proposition at first. I think he quite he panicked a bit. You know, Cameron started talking to him about it. And he didn't get it, Schwarzenegger. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the Terminator. And, you know, I think he worried for, you know, what he had established. You know, he was the biggest star in the world. I could be the most famous person in the world at that mm. point in time, based on, you know, what the Terminator had done for him. And Cameron was threatening to shatter it. Mm. And especially with the core one, with the Terminator. And Cameron's just like, trust me. And I think Cameron also appealed to him as, as an actor. He said, can you imagine playing this, performing? Mm. And actually, I, I think really maybe his best performance, Schwarzenegger. He's superb in that film. Yeah. Yeah. You know, his timing and his, yeah, his, his carrying on with the kind of the established idea of the Terminator being a machine, but adjusting yeah. that subtly to this idea that his neural net processor or whatever it is can learn. It's been switched on and the kid can teach him. It seems to give Schwarzenegger more confidence, this role as well, because these movies afterwards weren't just straightforward action movies. They had a bit more a bit more heart and a bit more acting potentially in them, I think. And uh, so we've got James Cameron to thank for twins. Cheers for that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say Jingle All the Way. Jingle yeah. All the Way, yeah. Junior, all those wonderful films. God. But he, he's so iconic in this. When you think of Terminator, you probably do think Terminator 2, Terminator. And yes, the, and the scenes. Some of the scenes are so iconic. Which ones stand out for you? Is it the action scenes or um, you know the moments between yes, the boy I mean, and the robot? Actually, I still love the the opening. I think it's superb. I think the opening is is not just uh, you know great filmmaking in, in the way he sort of establishes or re-establishes the character. You know, doing exactly the same as he did in the first one. He arrives in the crackle of lightning. He's stark naked. He walks into that truck dive full of sort of hell's angels. Brilliant idea. Yeah, yeah. Hell's angels. You know, that, that's great. It's a truck stop on the edge of LA. And, you know, he's naked. And so it's, it's, a, it's a comedy sequence. Mm. And what mm. Cameron is subtly doing is he's sort of recalibrating our perception of the character. You know, he's, he's setting up Arnie for the movie for us. So if you think back to the Terminator, he arrives in Griffith Park and there's Bill Paxton as a punk with his gang and Arnie comes up and, and sort of basically kills them all and, and it's kind of ruthless and Sasha movie-like. Here, the same kind of thing is going on instead of punks, they're Hell's Angels. So he's replaying the scene. He's doing what sequels do. In fact, you do structure the film in a similar way, hmm. hit similar beats, but they're, they're completely different, completely inverted. And as soon as you see him, and walk into the bar, you kind of know that he's different and he's funnier and you're kind of rooting for him in a different way. You kind of want him to, to kill the bad guys. But as he walks out dressed in leathers and he puts the shades on and gets onto the Harley, yeah, you think this is kind of like superhero stuff. This is kind of an icon reestablished. But we knew without being told that he was a hero. I don't know mm. what how Cameron sort of plays the scene. Of course, then you see that the liquid metal guy arrive at the same time. So we get the counterpoint and we understand. And then you get the kid. Yeah. It's just an extraordinary opening. But again, it's just scenes, isn't it? Uh, again, I watched it relatively recently. The the kind of the, the storm drain chase 
It's just yeah. it's so, it's just metal being hurled around. There's yeah. You know, there's a point where the T one thousand crashes the it's like a tow truck and it, into the ground. And they do it mm. in slow mo, extreme slow mo. So you see the stress wave go through the metal, and that's kind of a metaphor for the whole film. The whole film's a stress wave. He's going to put you through. <laughs> I feel like, like Michael oh. Bay saw that scene with the stress wave and then just yeah. made a Transformers franchise out of that one shot. Oh, I have <laughs> no idea why that was good. Why you had to, you know. And in some ways, you know, it, what it is, is it's a bit sad as well because Cameron is starting to leave those things behind. The mm. film is sort of impregnated with his own change because of the, the CGI use for the, for the T-1000 that all these fantastic things, you know, in reality, he's going to start doing on computers and gradually yeah. move away. I know we go through Titanic and all that, that element, but th- there are the seeds of doom. The machines are, are going to take over his career. And that's kind of there as well. I love the, the what probably my favorite action sequence in the film is the chase, the highway chase uh, yeah. towards the end. So they go from blowing up Cyberdyne with the T-1000 on their tail towards the big factory at the end. And they'd shut down like two and a half miles of, of freeway in LA. Only Cameron would do that. They had kind of lighting rigs on towers. Like, you know, from a distance, it must have looked like Close Encounters or something. You know. Aliens were landing over there. <laughs> and of course, it was done over weeks. They drove these trucks down the SWAT van and all those fantastic things. But they got that thing where the helicopter comes down, literally almost on the same level as the vehicles. It's behind them. And there's a, a freeway bridge which is a Pacific Coast Highway, goes over the freeway they were on. So it's four lanes of traffic, this freeway bridge. And I know the story that um, the plan was that the, the trucks go under and the helicopter goes up and over and down again and follows on. And the guy, the, the, the helicopter pilot, was a bit like James Cameron. He was gung-ho. He was kind of like, and he went to Cameron, I think on the night they were due to do it, and said, I'll fly it under the bridge. I'll fly a chopper under the underpass. And Cameron, it's never been done. No. Yeah, you know, it's incredibly risky if you think about it. The blades are about eight feet from the concrete. Above. Yeah, yeah. You can't go down because the ground is is down. So the clearance issues are, you know, beyond the the, the rules of, with aviation. I'm not sure were obeyed. I mean, maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Cameron, of course, is like absolutely. You know, let's do this. And they had to um, damp down all the dust on the on the road because it would blow up into eddies and affect the, the, the rotor blades. So they had to kind of damp it all down. And they did one practice and then two run-throughs for, for the actual shooting. And, and guess who is shooting it, handheld, within 10 feet of, of the chopper? James Cameron. He's in the, in the camera truck, <laughs> getting as close to that chopper as he can. But it's just the thing I miss about James Cameron, however you think about Avatar and whatever you think the sequel's going to bring, he doesn't fly choppers under bridges anymore. No. And no one does. Yeah. It's, it's such a CGI thing now. I don't. Think, I think the producers must. They must have told the producers just to have a walk that day. Just leave the set. You don't <laughs> yeah, want to yeah. see what's about to happen. They must have had a nightmare. Just thinking about it gives me cold sweats. But it is also my favourite scene in that movie. It's just thinking about it. It's an incredible uh, scene. Oh man, I love that film. I love Terminator Two. I think it's possibly my. Well, today it's going to be my favourite sequel. Tomorrow it's probably going to be something different. <laughs> it's very hard. What sequel has left you so disappointed so not the worst sequel but maybe something you you build up in your head and you thought this is going to be great and then you came out and you're like oh um well it's, it's kind of connects with what you asked about what the worst sequel was and beautiful um and the reason i, I kind of i went at it because there are so many terrible sequels and because it's an industry that sort of thrives on copycats and repeat play and 
if that worked, do it again. Yeah, you, mm. it's a litany of, of awful sequels. You know, the, the Terminators that, that came on, you know, diminishing returns of those. The Alien sequels, uh, yeah, they're just, you know, they're, I think there are interesting things about Alien 3, but yeah, Alien Resurrection and, and all the ones that sort of, you think, oh, God. But for me, the, the greatest, I think, descent from height to, 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 to the kind of awfulness on a level that I cared about was Speed 2. Yeah. Because Speed was so good. Yeah. It, it's one of those fantastic, pure action movies. Yeah. I'm sure Cameron loved it. He must have loved it. <laughs> It built on this, this kind of beautiful, you know, poetic high concept of a bus you know, that's going to has a bomb on board. If it goes above fifty miles an hour, the bomb switches on. If it goes back below fifty miles an hour, the bomb goes off, and yeah. it's heading for rush hour traffic in LA. So yeah. it's just perfect as a setup because your brain goes, "Oh shit!" You know, what's going to happen? How are they going to solve it? And what's brilliant about speed is, you know how it sustains that one idea and, and sort of extrapolates what can be done from it. It's kind of, it's a brilliant screenplay, really amazing screenplay about you take a movie like concepts and you start to, you kind of create a movie around it. You know, who's the killer? Why is he doing that? And, you know, who's the hero? What kind of guy is he? And he has to be gung ho and he has to be mad. And then they can put Keanu Reeves in it for some reason. And it works perfectly because yeah. Keanu Reeves mm -hmm. has this kind of, you know, rather kind of amusing and sweet recklessness about him. He doesn't quite get things. That makes him perfect for the situation because he's you know, too ballsy to care. And he, Sandra Bullock, you know, is the girl on the bus who ends up driving the bus. Just, I mean, it, it's it's like um, a perfect sort of measured thriller in a way that each beat of the film you know, expands the idea and takes you further. And the screenplay, Graham Yost is the guy who wrote it. And he just, I mean, this could have been, this had been a sequel. This would have been maybe my answer to the first question, but it's a, a first <laughs> film. And yeah, he's thought about how you get the bus driver off, what happens. He's thought about problems on the bus. So there's a, a criminal already on the bus, a guy with a gun. Then he's thought about all the problems you have to pose the bus. You have to get it off the freeway because the freeway is jam-packed. How do you mm. do that? Then they had this idea of, they had the earthquake had been recently. Uh, in, and so the, the, the freeways weren't finished. So they got empty freeways. They got an empty freeways. Just all these things, they, they kind of kept exacerbating and escalating the idea. So, so James Cameron concept, films need to escalate. Mm. Yeah, that's how they move along. So yeah, the, the audience don't, can't be let to settle. You've got to kind of keep getting more scared rather than kind of like pause and go back in, pause. You mm. escalate your, your action movie tenor. And Speed does that perfectly. So let me tell you, in the middle of the 90s, we were in the market for a speed sequel. In fact, we were all writing them ourselves in our heads. Everyone was going, speed on there, speed on a plane, speed on, you know, how are you going to do it again? Speed on that. I conceived of an idea myself and watched the bomb, a series of bombs we placed in shopping malls across LA. And it was all about how you got from one shopping mall to the next. You know, it was the same Keanu Reeves character. This is my pitch. Never got to pitch it to 20th Century Fox, sadly. <laughs> but... Um, and the speed was how fast you got to move across LA to, to stop the next bomb. Mm. And I hadn't really thought it all through. Surely we'd just get in a chopper, but you know, and go to the next one. But there were going to be various complicated reasons about you know why the bombs were there and how you know speed was about how you got to, to do it, which is a bit diehard um, with the vengeance when you think about it. That's kind of that idea. Yeah. But everyone was doing it. everyone in their heads. Yeah, we're going to do speed. And then the rumours started to circulate. Again, it's when, when hype was, was up and running. And I was obviously a film journalist by this time. I was on Empire. So we were very keyed in to what Speed 2 might be. 
and obviously Fox wanted to, to you know, to get one going as soon as possible. Mm. And they started talking about a boat. I mean, they were kind of like, you know, there were kind of jokes going around in the Empire office, but how fast does a boat go? <laughs> You're on a, yeah, I'm presuming it wasn't the speedboat because that wouldn't make much of a movie. Yeah. It's going to be a, a, an ocean liner. A, you know, a notoriously go. slow thing. A notoriously <laughs> slow thing. The film's called Speed. You know, that's a, a basic speed. idea. Yeah. <laughs> so going, yeah, it's it's not. You know, you can do Die Hard on an ocean liner when it's yeah. kind of it's like a small building floating at sea. And that's great. You know, kind of idea works. I mean, Under Siege is basically that movie where it's mm. you, know, you just contain the drama on the boat rather than making the boat the thing. But if you're making a speed, the, the vehicle has to be on the move. So that kind of perplexed us. Then these rumours started to circulate uh, that Keanu Reeves wasn't happy with what they were doing, what the script was, what they maybe just did like the boat and the concept. I wonder why. Now, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, I, I had a you know, professional interest in this because obviously we were planning Empire covers at the time. You know, you, you plot to plot your Empire covers sort of a year ahead and you start to negotiate with the studio and you kind of hone in on your timing and, and obviously, we'd all love Speed, and it'd been a big selling magazine for Empire. We'd had Keanu on the cover. So we, we kind of, we were invested in Speed 2, maybe a bit blindly. And you get caught up. You know, we hadn't seen it. We hadn't read any scripts. And we were a bit skeptical about ocean liners, but we we're going, to, okay, these guys are professionals. They're going to do something. But once Keanu dropped out, we were a bit like, what do we do? You know, do we back out? But we stuck with it. We stuck with the Sandra equation. We we're going to put Sandra on our cover with a boat or whatever it was. You know, it was one of the, it was at the time still one of the biggest films of that summer. There had been various trailers, which had been a bit odd, but there's Willem Dafoe and there was some action. And it, you know, we were just kind of going, okay, but we'll see what happens. But I think in our hearts, certainly in my heart, there was this sense that you can't do this without Keanu Reeves. You can't do a Terminator film without Arnie and you can't do a speed movie without Keanu because they were sort of intricately tied together. Yeah, yeah. And they were, they were going to do that. And I think Fox must have known. I think it was just, it was, ironically enough, a runaway train of a film, <laughs> but sadly not a runaway train of that a That would plot. be a better, a much yeah. better concept. They couldn't do that. that was it Under Siege 2? Under Siege 2, where... that, that's a train, yeah. Yeah, see, <laughs> that's the problem. This feels more like an Under Siege movie than it does a speed <laughs> film. But... It, it, it does, Um but anyway, we were caught up, like Fox, we were caught up in this kind of, this runaway train of an event. And we'd invested in shooting uh, Sandra and all these things. It was all quite exciting still. And then word came back to us that Sandra wouldn't be shot on her own. She had to be shot with Jason Patrick, the replacement to uh, Keanu Reeves. And, you know, best will in the world. Jason Patrick, at that point, and at no other point in his career yeah, yeah. has ever been a big star. Maybe maybe for about five minutes after The Lost Boys, but yeah, yeah he's, he's, he's done some great performances, Jason Patrick, um, but he's not really got that that wow factor of, of a movie star. And maybe at that point, we should have smelled a rat, um, but we were so still good. committed to this speed to debacle. <laughs> yeah, we were kind of headed to you know, the dock with the ship can't stop. <laughs> that was us. That was 20th Century Fox. This was this whole damn film. And then, and this will kind of relate to the story to come, but um, I, I, I was kind of working on the Danny Boyle film with him and Andrew McDonald, who's his producer at the time, had told me he'd read the Speed 2 screenplay and had heard it's diabolical, the film. And the whole of the studio was caught up in this, how do we rescue this, this, this disaster? And I'm like, thanks for telling me that. I've got a cover coming out in you know, a 
matter of months and we can't get out of it now because there are publicists involved and Sandra's involved and Jason's involved. So, well, we kind of knew, I think Fox kind of knew, everybody kind of knew, I think the whole of the world kind of knew this was going to be an awful film. We were just waiting for it to, to happen. I can't even, you know, it's interesting you said, um, what's your worst sequel? I can't even remember a lot of what happens in it. I remember <laughs> there's a scene where Jason Batra is introduced on a motorbike as being mm. a bit reckless and Keanu-like. Yeah. He sort of takes his helmet off and you all kind of go, oh, it's Jason Patrick, <laughs> it's not Keanu. And there's some throwaway line about yep. her, her old boyfriend oh. being into... You know, he was too of, dangerous, you know, he was too crazy, gunman. that's why they broke up. Yeah. And, and Jason Patrick, she <laughs> thought, worked on the beach as like beach police until yeah. the crash that's at the beginning. Yeah. So I... I watched this film at the cinema. Wow. So I was 16 and I saw this film in the cinema and I remember absolutely hating it. And then I watched it. I hadn't watched it again until yesterday. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> thanks for that. Um, <laughs> and I watched it again yesterday. I went, oh, yeah, I remember exactly why I hated this movie so much. It It's basically a two hour long episode of Baywatch. Yeah. It's it's yeah, yeah. terrible. It it belongs on an early nineties TV show, not not a Hollywood movie. It's awful. But it kind of breaks every, yeah. It, it sort of breaks its own rules, doesn't it? Because the beauty of speed is you take the kernel of the idea and you extrapolate outwards. Here you've got an idea you've got to kind of move back inwards. It's a bomb on a boat with for some reason Sandra Bullock's on the boat with her new cop boyfriend. And you've got your, your, as a director and a screenwriter, you're trying to figure out how to make that exciting, how to create this kind of um, runaway train sort of structure, how to create the idea that this thing is unstoppable. What are we going to do? Mm. And of course, it just doesn't. Everyone can just get off the boat. It, it's just got this kind of. I don't know, Willem Dafoe, I think, gives it a go, doesn't he? He's the kind of disgruntled employee. Willem Dafoe's a, almost a little too Willem Dafoe, I think. <laughs> he's like he's like turned up to eleven. Yeah, <laughs> I think the reason for that is that he just realises what bad movie he's in. He's like, right, yeah. I'm just gonna have to give it everything. There's nothing else for it. I'm just gonna have to ham this. He up. wanted to go big. Yeah, I think he was like, uh, I've read read the um, the IMDb and the Wikipedia pages this morning because they so they won't lie yeah. at all. But he wanted to do a big movie. I think he just wanted to put a big hammy performance in. But this this whole film reminds me. Of, I think it's a sequel uh, sequence in one of the Austin Powers when he's on a, a, a slow moving steamroller. Yes. Someone won't move out the way for ages, and like get out the way, get out the way. And it's actually, it's interesting eh? coming back to Cameron and and what makes Cameron so skillful is that all chasing is the kind of dilations in time. You you kind of bring things close together and you pull them apart to extend a chase. You've got to kind of break the, the rules of physics a little bit in time. And as filmmakers, you have to disguise that. You, you don't let the audience in on the way you're cheating with things. And Halloween, you know, as I was yesterday, is a brilliant use of that idea. You know, that basically, Michael Myers moves in ways that aren't normal. And that's the rules of Halloween. So he can go from the top, of, from a landing to the bottom of the stairs in a, in a second. Hmm. And that's just you know, what we accept as the inner logic of, of Halloween. Mm. He dilates time. You can't ever catch up with him. And he can always catch up with you because he doesn't obey the laws of time. And a lot of chase sequences do that. And, and Cameron is, is, is an absolute master of, you, you, to sustain the kind of tension of a chase, you've got to keep your actions, you've got to keep them apart rather than bring yeah. them together. You've got to kind of do that. It's, it's kind of dance routine almost. And if you look at the, the brilliant scene we were talking about earlier from Terminator 2, that, what is so great about that truck chase 
is it's kind of like almost a pinball. They kind of come close and they hit each other and go back out again. And then they kind of, they get them to swap vehicles. Everyone keeps having to change vehicles. And what this does is sustain the chase. It kind of creates a narrative within the chase. It's absolutely superb screenwriting. There's nothing, the whole of speed is that, which is sustaining the chase. And how do you do it? And it stretches credibility, but I think it, it's kind of winking a little bit at us. But speed two is it's so slow and lumbering. <laughs> so slow. Now, actually, what you've got to do is bring things, you've got to speed it up. You've got to kind of try and do it the opposite. At one point, around. they're like, oh, my God, we're going to crash in six hours. Yeah. <laughs> what can we do? It's like, oh, we, I'm sure we can figure something out in that time. And they said they can't get off the boats, but then William Defoe gets off the boat on a speedboat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It, it's very hard. Imperatives are very hard, I think, when you're a screenwriter. And you, you've really got to be, you know, it's good writing. It separates from bad writing about how you create imperatives. Fact, have you seen the new Bond film? Yes, loved it. Rich, have you I, seen I, it I, Yeah, we've all seen it. Okay, so we won't say. But not to give too much away, but there's an end sequence where Bond goes back to finish a job. And I thought it wasn't the greatest piece of writing because the imperative that takes him out of the boat, back into the base to complete the job, mm. actually doesn't exist. There's no bomb about to go off. You know, his loved ones are safe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's missiles incoming, but the situation wasn't imperative. It, it was kind of vaguely, you know, it could, they could go away and regroup and come back again. And the situation wouldn't change. Yeah. I have a, I'm a dreadful magician when it comes to uh, watching films. And I thought, going, well, why, why is he doing that? Yeah. I know emotionally why, why it needs to happen and dramatically, but great screenwriting creates imperatives that you realise there's no other way the story can yeah. know, evolve. It's got one route to go down. Yeah. It's inescapable doom and all those kind of things are, are sewn in. And that's great you know, writing rather than great you know, uh, drama or, all kind of, or great filmmaking. Just great writing creates imperatives. And I think the brilliance of Cameron is his films are unpredictable, but they're like gravity. They're going to happen that way no matter what. They're, they're this kind of force within them that... Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's that's what creates tension. You think about aliens again. The imperatives in aliens are, are like the movie. You know, they have got to live. They've got to survive. You know, there are no other choices, and things just keep getting worse. As you know, um, Bill Paxton keeps telling us that along the way, this thing's just getting worse. <laughs> and it's just it's brilliant. I mean, he he has an, an, he's an artist of the imperative, James Cameron. Um, from the moment that the, the Marines go into the nest. And things, you know, I love it. Things scares the shit out of me. Incredible sequence, you know, all the moving parts of that sequence, the screens with the flat lining on them, mm. the, the kind of the, the armored personnel carrier cutting between that. And then it's a scene, a really important scene dramatically as well. It's the point Ripley takes charge. It's the point where she has to step up. And that's always a, a Ripley thing because she can see the imperative before anyone else can. That's what makes her Ripley. And it's just a fabulous moment where, you know, Gorman is cracking up and you know, all the marines are dying and she takes charge and sort of takes controls the, the kind of armed person crashes into the nest and you know and all those one, that wonderful cameron dialogue we are leaving and all that stuff you know michael bean and they're going that's um you know what brilliant writing does for you hmm. because you don't doubt a second of it no matter how far-fetched you know the, the scenario yeah the drive of it is great and he's come back to speed too there's just not any imperatives in it. There's nothing that, no. you know, the engine of the film is, is completely missing. There's and no jeopardy whatsoever. No one wanted to make okay. it, apart from the studio. The director didn't even want to make it, apparently, Jean de Bont. Yeah. And he was contracted and he was like, well, yeah, yeah. I had a dream once about a boat crashing into something. Let's do that. <laughs> do you think... Uh, I just want to know why they put UB40 in it. 
to be honest. Oh, I hate UB40 so much as well. That really adds to the hatred. <laughs> the best will in the world. They're hardly the most propulsive band, aren't they? They're kind of reggae, basically. It's, it's all quite right back. Yeah. You want a bit of heavy metal or something to kind of drive this thing yeah. forward. <laughs> I, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very strange... You, you imagine you have, the amount of screenwriters and the amount of money around that project they could have brought it. Yeah, they could have gone put a, done a bake-off in Hollywood and everyone come in with their speed two pitch. Because everyone had yeah. one. Yeah, we all had one. I had one. We all had one. Yeah, yeah. We all gone in and gone to work. Imagine this. I have to know how the press screening went when you guys watched it at Empire. Well, we we, we didn't go to Monty. We saw it early. Oh. It was at that time when the American releases and UK releases were still kind of staggered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We knew our fate, I think. It was already that, you know, we were committed to the cover. And I think it opened in America as our cover hit the newsstands and, you know, nosedived in both cases. And I think we saw it shortly before that. So we, we kind of committed and I think it maybe even gone to print with, with the issue. So there was, no, there was no U-turn on that. That was an imperative and we couldn't escape it. And... Um, Oh, God, yes, we saw the film. But we knew, I mean, one of the things, we were well aware the film was, was, was a problem. How bad, we, we didn't we didn't know. And I think it was about five of us who went in to see it at Fox. And I think even Fox was saying, lower your expectations. <laughs> the PR's quietly going, yeah, sorry, this hasn't really worked out. But, you know, Sandra, Sandra's on your cover. Yeah, She's yeah. lovely. Everybody loves Sandra. Everyone tried to... Everyone had a good spin on it. Totally yeah. wasted in this movie because she basically does nothing. <laughs> yes. She's bored. Everybody's bored. It's just a film that's sort of... Do you remember the star rating you gave it at Empire at the time? Was it... I, well, yeah. Now you're, 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 you're sort of dredging up, you know, the nightmare star ratings, <laughs> oh. the controversies of star ratings. Oh, God. You think, oh, it's got, it's got a cover, so I've got to go above two at least. You are kind of right it, you know we are not you know with, with empire there's always this rule that you, know, you, you you try and be positive as much as you yeah. can and it's what dro- drives empire forward you get people into the cinema you don't get them out of no it. one plans to make but, a bad film exactly so we are open-minded every day is christmas eve until we see the see the film yeah. before you open our presents but obviously you, you, you kind of you're faced with, with bad films that you've kind of invested in and it's really difficult because yeah, you know, if you put two stars you, you laugh at yourself in a way you know, yeah, yeah. saying we don't know what we're doing we put this on our cover now look at it it's terrible and they they blame the messenger you know it's it's an awful thing i mean like leap forward you know to phantom menace you know we put three years of work into the phantom menace negotiation investment everything and it paid off the cover sales were great yeah but the one element we could never control was the film itself you know the one thing we didn't have any influence on was george lucas <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I don't know if you remember the, the time, but you know it was Harry Knowles, and someone had seen a trade screening, and the word started to break. And we had a guy in America who saw it first. And I remember calling him, like got him out of bed, like seven o'clock in the morning or something. We we're all in the office, going, "Well, what, what?" And he kind of went, "Uh." I knew in that, uh, it, you know, Phantom Menace was as bad as as we thought. But then you're just confronted with this situation where you have committed this so much, you know, magazine real estate to, to one film, Return of Star Wars, and the film is a dud. And what do you do? And maybe you know, if we've given it two stars, it may, you know, honestly, it is a two star film. You're just, you know, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, but you're mildly less damned if you, if you kind of go with four stars yeah, yeah. And trick your way around it and what we did was we just found someone who could write a review without being one of the star wars zealots who could work a way around it and come up with an answer yeah it's it's star ratings are so hard they're a very blunt tool I bet. and yeah. i'm sure you could 
throw a list in front of me now and go, what the hell? <laughs> kind of right. We're the same. Batman and Robin, uh, you know, uh, I've got a litany that lie behind me that people still remember. People, you know, I got, after I gave Superman Returns, she's from I quite like, but it, you know, the, the Brian Singer, you know, I know, you know, he's been cast out of Hollywood and he's a terrible man. But at the time, you know, I quite like Superman Returns. It's got a kind of nice melancholy about it. I gave it five. I think we were seeing it very late, very close to press. It ain't a five star. People were calling me up at, at, in the office going, what the hell are you thinking? You know, I was getting shouted at by the readers. So I used to call at that point. Amazing. Sorry. The names I was called. I, was just... I can't imagine doing that. It's just phoning up a magazine and going, you're wrong. It's <laughs> so upset people. And you, and you kind of have to, you, know, you talk them down. You're going, I get it and I understand. And I'm, I'm giving you my opinion. I'm not giving you yours. I'm not telling you to think the same as me. Yeah, you make up your own mind. Yeah, it's fine. And and, and in the end, you usually, usually come back and you have a chat about something else. And they love you at the end of the conversation. But they, they always start by shrieking at you. And I, I you know, in a sense, I, I didn't mind because it showed they cared. They were yeah. passionate and they had a relationship with the magazine. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's like your older brother had told you a film was good and you hated it. <laughs> come to have a shout at you and i and i kind of got that and that was fine is there a film that a sequel that you went into and you thought this is going to be rubbish but you came out quite liking or really liking that that is a good question what, what 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 sequel were you surprised uh, about how how good it was going to be oh god no i can't come up with a good answer um i like these little questions <laughs> okay i can think so now and they'll probably come up can I come back to you on that? Yeah. I'm gonna have a, let, let me sell them a brain. I'm sure there is. I know there are, there, there are ones that... I can talk a little bit about is... Speed 2 and, and a bit more that I hate about it. Okay. Okay, you, you get a, it off your chest. There's you a death... Yeah, share. yeah, there's definitely something there. There's a death knell for me, for any movie, which is the point where I look at my watch and go, how long is left of this? And it's, for Speed 2, that happens about 45 minutes in. And I looked at it and I was like, how is this two hours? This film nearly done. Like, we know the baddie is. We know what he's trying to do. We know how to get out of it. And how is there an hour and 15 minutes left? Oh. What are they going to do? <laughs> and that was awful. But but the, the worst bit, I think, for me, is that there is a point where the boat crashes into the, the kind of town. Yes. And the, the jetty, isn't it? In yeah. order to make it slightly more dramatic, they massively speed up the film. So everyone runs in like fast forward yeah yeah <laughs> people running away from this boat in like comedy benny hill fast forward running <laughs> it's and just... it's, it's, it's the same guy isn't it is it chris palmer i can't remember the name of the actor it's the same guy whose car keanu yeah. oh. takes over and smashes the door off in the oh, first yeah. one it's the same it is, actor yeah. <laughs> going why me again weightless <laughs> yeah. casting again like no one really cared about his character in the first one but then he brought him back in the second one all I thought was that I hope the dog's okay, and then the dog's head pokes out of the car, and you're like, "Oh, of course, oh, the dog's yeah, okay." Dog's fine. <laughs> well, I mess with the dog. The problem they had is when they're talking about knots of like speed, and they're going, "Oh, we're at nine now." It just doesn't yeah. sound very like, fast, this... does it? <laughs> oh, <laughs> who knows what nine knots is? You know, <laughs> who cares? I know. You've got Brian, Brian McCarty's head doing yeah. this, or like little shots of him throwing his hair around. <laughs> There's no relativity, is there? Because with a bus, you, you compare it to the things around the bus. Yeah, moving. You know, cars and people on the streets. It's got a kind of reference point. And the music works as well. Boats are out at sea. There's no comparison. It's just, they all look slow, don't they, from a, from a, a wide shot. It, it, it kind of feels like two things. It feels like a film that, they were looking around for a script and they're like, oh, let's just use this one. It's called Cruise Control and stick speed yeah. on the front. Or it does feel like a, a diehard film, like you said. 
or an Under Siege film. Which yeah. Both do it better. like an episode of Baywatch. <laughs> that was my overriding feeling. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose the Die Hard... Yeah, the Die Hard setup, isn't it? It's about confined space. So what you have to do is you have to set an action movie somewhere that's confined. You limit mm. how far it can go. And yeah, it went from it gradually got bigger and bigger, didn't it? But it started with the tower yeah, yeah. and then got to an airport. And Die Hard Three, it's New York, probably slightly too big by Die Hard Three. And then after that, who cares? But um, <laughs> there's a lot of terrible sequels down that road. But that's that's the kind of concept, isn't it? And Under Siege took that and just gave it a kind of military Steven Seagal kind of twist. Um, yeah, he actually works. Speed, in that film. Yeah, yeah, it's quite funny in that film, isn't it? It's ridiculous. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think there's um. But with the, with the kind of speed, the, the the kind of idea is that it's less about the confined space than the movement. It's the, the momentum. It's the thing within yeah. the context of the city that works. Mm. It's, it's what and, the whole plot relies on. It's called speed. Yes. <laughs> yes. And like you said, when when you talk about the plot of the first speed you you can explain it in like a sentence like there's a bomb on yeah. a, a bomb on a bus and it can't go under 50 miles an hour you're like oh that's genius and then when you get to the second one you're like explain the plot to speed 2 there's a man who puts leeches on his body um, <laughs> and he used to uh, design these boats but now they they sacked him because he was getting sick uh, and he's put some bombs on to get the diamonds I think that's what he was doing. I don't even know. <laughs> and then instead of just sinking the boat, he wants to ram the boat into the, the town. But then he sees an oil uh, liner at one point and changes it to that. But that, then it misses that. And then he gets off. Uh, exactly. The plot's just diabolical. The whole thing's diabolical. You can always hear the kind of committee meeting, can't you? With the kind of the, the executive at Fox walking around, pointing at people. What have you got? Uh, diamonds. Diamonds. <laughs> okay, throw in diamonds. Yeah. Wait, what have leeches. you got? Leeches. <laughs> I love it. Leeches. Add it to the plot. You've been got the Okay. <laughs> oh man, it's so yeah, bad. It's just, Talking uh, about surprising sequels. If you thought about that, Die, I think Die Hard Three is a good answer to that. Would you have agreed to that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I have slight problems with the the ending which I know was reshot. There was um, a different ending involving a, a building blowing up, but the Unabomber had been at work in America. So they, they thought it wasn't good to have a building blowing up as a, a kind of finale. It was kind of bad politics. Oh, really? So they had that rather strange scene with the helicopters and getting tangled up in the electric wires. Oh yeah. Yeah. I remember. It kind of, it doesn't escalate as well as, you know, the, the previous ones had done. It isn't quite as you know, beautifully formed. I quite, I like Diehide too. I know it's not as good as Die Hard, but I, I, I like it. I like the way it keeps all these different moving things in, in motion. You know, the plane circling that can't land, yeah, yeah. the terrorists at some point, him stuck in the airport. And it's that point where Willis was so good at being the wrong guy, you know, being the anti-action hero. You know, he bled. Arnie never bled. And it's that was kind of the joy of, of John McClane, is he looked beaten up. But he had this kind of thing about him that, that won the day. Yeah, he's playing that role. He was, a, he was a cop from the 1950s thrown into the 1990s. Yeah, he was in the wrong era. And that kind of made it work. And he really kind of maintained that character. And that works beautifully with, as you say, in, in Die Hard 3, with the relationship with Samuel Jackson. And they're both kind of guys from the wrong era. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly caught up in this, this kind of mad thing. They have to drive around and solve problems. And yeah, it kind of does work. I think the problem is that as soon as you make it a city, you are losing that that, that nice thing about being sort of confined and trapped. Yeah. 
Mm. And, and Die Hard 4 really, I thought, should have gone back the other way and, and taken it back into a building on you know, some level. They went even bigger. They went states. Like Yeah. <laughs> and by is it number five or six? I, I can't remember. Oh, they've gone to They're Chernobyl, in Russia. Yeah. yeah. It's like, well, what? this is such an American story. You know, why are you in Russia? And it's just lost control of itself. Which speed, speed franchise did with number two. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's camera understands. There are things you have to have, and there are things you can play with and expand and change. And but if you lose the things you have to have, then it kind of it falls apart. It's a very funny story about after Alien Three came out and being this big disappointment. And David Fincher was a crushed man, been through his hell, you know, of a journey. And so Gorney Weaver took him and Cameron out to dinner to try and cheer David Fincher up. Not very helpfully, one would assume, to take Cameron with him. But the three of them met for dinner. And they kind of sit down. And the first thing Cameron just shouts at him is, you killed Newt! <laughs> yeah, he just shouts at Fincher's, you know, he's already kind of been beaten up by Hollywood. Now he's got Cameron in his face. But he's right, Cameron. Because Cameron can see that if you're going to do Alien 3, then Newt is necessary. Newt is the thing that the second film has built up that's become necessary to carry on mm, mm. otherwise everything that went on in number two has been completely devalued the fact that ripley goes back and saves the child the whole surrogate mother element the whole focus on newt is you know her own future what saves herself is, is rescuing newt all of that is just dissolved as soon as you kill newt in, in the opening in the credits of, of alien 3 it's all very miserableist and, and impressive an art movie but as a sequel it, it just destroys it mm. Thanks. Why people were... They worked so hard to keep Newt and Hicks alive. Was it Hicks? I can't remember. Yes. Alive. It's Hicks. At yeah. the end of Aliens, you think, I can't wait to see where they, they take these. And then they, they don't even give them a proper death, like an honorary death. They're just like, oh, they died yeah. in that pod. That was it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, kind of off camera. Um, it's Yeah, there's all sorts of issues uh, about the, the, the rights to use Michael Bean's face and, and all that yeah. came into it. And yeah... <laughs> Alien 3 is a very strange film. Not an uninteresting film, but a very strange film. And as a sequel, it's very bad because you know it doesn't give you the same feeling. It completely divorces itself. I have kind of theory that in some ways Alien 3 is a sequel to Alien than it than an Alien sequel because it sort of carries on the mood and feel of, of Aliens but slightly extrapolates it. Hmm. So it sort of enlarges the, the kind of setting but brings a similar feel. Uh, to, to the original Alien. It's much more of a haunted house film. It's much more of a gothic film than Aliens is. And so it's kind of, I think if you think about Alien 3 almost as a direct sequel to Alien, it kind of makes a bit more sense. Yeah. It kind of fits into place. Um, I think a lot more people yeah. are coming around to Alien 3, especially the director's cut, isn't it? In, in more... Yeah, see, it's got the assembly cuts because obviously Fincher won't even look at it. <laughs> Uh, you, won't, you won't even talk about it. About, so has he has he spoken to you about it? Or no, I, I, I yeah, I've, I've never interviewed Fincher. I, I, I'm quite good friends with Charles Desarita, De La Zarita, I get his name right. Who he's the guy who put together all the extras from for the anthology editions yeah, great. And, that, and made all the documentaries. And he edited the assembly cut and sort of put the new stuff back in and, and did what he could with it based on original screenplay notes and and, and things that he had. Um, so it gets you to as near as he can to what Fincher's vision might have been. But he said he, he left a message with Fincher. He was given the number because he wanted his approval. He wanted at least to say, I've done this. Do you want to look at it? You know, I've, I've not done this out of hand. 
and he got a call back and he a message left from his answer phone. And he says, it's just the voice going, oh, shit. The phone just goes down. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, that was it. And he's met Fincher subsequently and he's worked with him a bit, but he's just like, that's all. He just couldn't. He couldn't bring himself even to look at it and he had such go a bad near time. it. I think he needs to now come to terms with it. It's been so long. Yeah. And go back and see the value that that's, yeah. that's in it for him as a director. Set up his style. I mean, it's all there in... You look at Seven, it looks like Alien 3. Yeah. The same aesthetic is at work. What is your dream sequel? Well, this is segues very nicely, doesn't it? Um, my dream sequel is a certain one. It's not a, not a general no. one. It's a, it's a specific version of Alien 4. Now, Alien was a series I was very invested into. Um, you know, I love Ridley Scott's original. And obviously, I love the Cameron one. And I've been perplexed by Alien 3, but I was committed to this franchise. And I was a guy covering it for Empire. I kind of staked out that territory for myself you know as you do greedily when you're on a magazine so you know i was kind of um very invested into alien resurrection uh i think at that point it was still called alien 4 we didn't didn't have a have a title but through various means partly through our relationship with with danny boyle's camp we got hold of the script and at that point danny boyle was was being interviewed for it and tempted with it and he was given the screenplay obviously and it was joss whedon you know who wrote the alien resurrection and the first draft is it's big but a lot of the things are there but it's fantastic it's completely different the third act is completely different so it builds up the same way it's 200 years later and ripley's brought back as a clone and there are these pirates who can ship bodies in and scientists are experimenting on on aliens has all that relatively same it was much more elaborate it was too long the screenplay you knew it was going to have to come in but by the third act Joss Whedon is just going for it. He's doing camera. He's escalating. So instead of that weird stuff that happens at the end of Alien Resurrection, half alien, half human, I don't know whatever was the hell was going on at the end of Alien Resurrection. No one really knows. Um, there's a far different ending in, in the original screenplay. Yeah, there are aliens who are white that because they've been genetically changed. There are aliens who can move much faster. They can scale walls in sort of an instant. He had masses of them breaking out of this science thing. He had ones that could fly, who were starting to develop wings. It was a whole idea about genetic mutation affecting the aliens. And it was just, I mean, they're in Danny Boyle's notes. How the hell are we going to do this? <laughs> because CGI really at that stage wasn't, it was starting to be used, but wasn't at a stage where it could be used as director of this. We even had just let his imagination go and said, I'm going to do aliens again. I'm going to just keep them coming, but I'm going to do variations on a thing. You know, I'm going to change the aliens and Ripley's at the heart of it and you're fighting these things off and it's uh, again it's a survival story yeah the, the, the general structure is the same as, as alien resurrection the band of pirates have to kind of make their way through the space station but it was so much bigger there wasn't just one or two aliens following them about they were everywhere and they were coming up through the, the oh. vents and they were coming out of the walls and, and they were kind of very bizarre I mean it would have been quite a bizarre alien film still I think you know, the, the mm. flying ones is, is kind of a weird thing. And I just, we just kind of got very excited, as you would. We thought, well, you know, this needs a bit of taming and, and whatever, you know, costs will come into effect. Uh, but this sounds exciting. And the idea that Danny Boyle, you know, he at this point made Shallow Grave and he'd made um, Trainspotting mm. and had that kind of vibrancy about his filmmaking, almost like Scorsese-like in the way he kind of moved his camera and you know, he moved between, the way he edited his films, the kind of visual play of things, 
you look at train spotting and you look at shallow graves it's slower you can see an alien movie from those those films in terms of style you know the way he executes them his films are very fast and you know full of uh, kind of emotional energy which is kind of what james cameron has i know they're very different filmmakers make very different choices but they have that same kind of emotional energy that as i said imperatives desperation those kind of are the forces at work which is what you need for an alien movie you actually watch the first two films they're very emotional films there are people absolutely at their wits end the height of crisis and it's about emotion and dealing with that think about hudson yeah you know who just loses mm-hmm. it in aliens and you think about ripley's great gift is, is to contain her emotions and to think through them you know to, to keep a calm head while all else is, is going kind of haywire and there's that great joke isn't there about having sort of artificial humans in the middle of these dramas in the middle of these action movies who have no emotions and they're kind of comparative you know to compare them to to the humans it's kind of great kind of idea at work so ash and, and bishop you know are very important constituents yeah and yes you learn that winona ryder character call is an artificial but she's moved on Whedon was doing things with her as a female one playing on our own perceptions of artificial life really good ideas were at work it's that real lesson I think when you read a screenplay, you know, a first draft or a second draft of a screenplay, you realize the writer is often not to blame. The writer has known all the things that you know and want, and they've tried to put them down. It's then got to go through the the, the kind of the rinse cycle of of the studio. Mm. Budget constraints, producers, stars have their demands. Ripley, uh, Weaver would have come in and said, well, I don't want to be doing that. I want to do less. I don't want guns. She was obsessed with not firing guns in the films. All the kind of things uh, yeah, that take you away from what the core prospect of the, of the film is. And of course, writers have no power. They're at the bottom of the food chain. So yeah. Whedon, at that point, you know, didn't have any influence. So he would see his, his screenplay get whittled down and whittled down. And uh, Genet would come in and yeah, he's got a rather wacky sense of humour, yeah. uh, which works very well in his French films. But um, yeah, it didn't really fit the tone of voice I think that the alien films needed they needed to be quite earnest and you sort of insert the humor on top of that yeah uh, which Cameron does very well you know he, you can put Hudson in there to be the kind of pressure valve to give the audience a chance to go and then we gather again and but you, you can't play these things as, as comic you can't and that seems to be the tone of voice that Alien Resurrection has yeah that it doesn't take itself seriously and yeah. That isn't there in the first screenplay. That that was kind of lost. So, you know, if you say, what would be my dream sequel is to kind of rewind time and convince Danny Boyle, who maybe rightly thought this isn't going to work, mm. and get him to direct mm. Alien 4, as it was then. It might have been called Alien Resurrection. I don't know. As it was with, what, $200 million thrown at it, you know, which would never have been given to it. So we'd have thousands of aliens and all sorts of rampant chaos with Danny Boyle's kind of fantastic, vivid camera work and, and you know, understanding of character. I think he would have done great things with Weaver, you know, it's a kind of amoral, you know, uncertain character that we don't know whether we can trust or yeah. not. They never quite get a hold of that. I think she's really good in Alien Resurrection. And I think she was much better than the film. But I think the, the ambiguity around her kind of ebbs away and she becomes more standard Ripley as it goes on. Whereas you think Danny Boyle might have kind of 
explored that you know whose side is she really on mm, question that's mark. a great that's a great idea yeah. i love yeah. the idea of rewinding time and going back and doing alien 4 mainly because i think we could avoid alien versus predator and alien <laughs> versus predator 2 if we could do that yeah. <laughs> they're not good films. oh god requiem that's a terrible oh, film so bad yeah that's been someone's worse that has been someone's worst. I, yeah. I can see that because Alien, Alien versus Predator you, it's a bad film but it's a kind of B-movie kind of energy to it that you can get through it it's, it's mercifully short I think is the uh, is the positive yes. <laughs> Alien Requiem or Alien versus Predator Requiem I remember like you're saying looking at your watch going how much more of it <laughs> it's dumb shit so, yeah. <laughs> and you can't see anything either it's just yeah. black you're just watching a black screen most of the time <laughs> that's, a, that's a real bet noir of mine no pun intended is action scenes at night and they're in, they're coming they're on the increase mm. yeah they allow directors to cheat basically they're really hard to do an action scene daytime is really hard because you've got to show where everything is and your geography of scenes becomes all important at night you can just edit however you want and you have no idea where things are you're kind of right left right and center you know where are they who are they who's where are the bad guys it's just stuff mm. happening Absolutely. sensation over logic and yeah it really drives me mad i would i would love to watch a movie an action movie that just happens at midday you know? <laughs> <laughs> that would be great well speed isn't it yeah speed yeah. is all daytime yeah they don't uh-huh. even even though they've gone the underground at the end but it's all daytime yeah. that film sorry to go back to Res- alien resurrection do you know how close danny boyle got to do it did he sign papers did he go he didn't not production no i think he was he was obviously he got the script and he was having he was negotiating with them um at the same time i think john hodge had written a lifeless oh, yeah, yeah. and that was kind of happening and that was with fox as well so this was kind of the relationship he had a relationship with the studio and i think his point of view was uh, it's just it was too big he felt at the time he thought he was going to lose control when I mean, there was guyler and hill were, were still in charge the two producers who produced them all and Danny's kind of great, but I think he's left, needs to be left alone. When you have Cameron demands to be left alone and sort of fights his corner because he likes battles. And Ridley's a bit like that as well. He, you know, he's ready for the scrum. And I'm not sure Danny would have been as, as, as much as those two. And, and Fitcher wasn't. You know, he was beaten up by the whole situation. Yeah, It's a bit of a sink or swim. And he thought, I don't want to go down that road. I don't want to get caught up. And this would have been two years of his life given up to it. Do you think a Danny think Boyle would... now would do a decent job? I think he would. He wouldn't do it because he had such a horrible time on Sunshine with the special effects and he hated doing special effects so much because they were so slow. Yeah. I don't think he'll ever go back to a, a big special effects movie. I think he'll he'll just kind of... He may do bits of stuff around the edges, but uh, yeah. I don't think he'll, he'll head back in a hurry to science fiction. I did read that, um, that this was offered to Peter Jackson. Did that ever come up in any of your conversations? Or is that a complete... Uh, he never mentioned Alien. He, um, he's funny. I mean, I've talked about him with Alien because he has, you know, he's a great prop collector. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And we talked about, you know, we had a, a nice chat once we weren't on, you know, d- doing an interview. We were just talking about Alien. I, I'd done books on it at that point and he was talking about it. He was sort of off the record about how he much he hated Prometheus and all those things. And he went, well, I, I've got the derelict. And I said, why is he? I've got Giga's original model of the derelict. It's huge. It's the giant donut derelict. You know, it's about 10 feet across. 
Wow. So he said, he said, warehouse down the road. And he said, go and have a look. So I kind of got to scamper down the road after we'd finished talking and they opened up this box and there's the derelict. He was a bit knackered. I bet. Um, so he, he, he was really into Alien. Um, and he's, he's, he says he's, he was offered, he makes a joke that he, he was he was offered David Finch's career. At various stages, he's been offered all the kind of projects. Fight Club he was offered. He was offered Benjamin Button. I think it might have been seven at one point. He got, because he was circling around Hollywood at the similar time mm. when, when Finch began. Yeah. They were kind of at the same sort of times. So it's interesting. I must find that out whether he, he got a chance to do Alien. It does say in a Wikipedia post, so I'm not quite right. sure how, how true that is. Have. because the other the other one i mean i could have said uh, but the sequels were good so maybe it didn't feel quite as pertinent was you know his version of planet of the apes mm. i mean there's a whole i mean if you want to talk about you know dream sequels that, that i would love to see there's a whole load of planet of the apes sequels i would would kill for oliver stone's planet of the apes mm. you can imagine what a political metaphor that would have been <laughs> james cameron's planet of the apes with arnie yeah you can imagine how huge that would wow. be yeah absolutely and then the peter jackson's of which there is a script that he wrote at one point that might have been the Cameron version it was a lot of kind of again it's Fox doing various projects mm. and, and all the kind of the stuff that goes on in a studio but the Jackson version of, of Planet of the Apes is, is really interesting his is a direct sequel to the original series oh, right. he wanted Roddy McDowell to come back and he was going to have like he's going to call it it's called the Renaissance of Planet of the Apes it was going to be like the Renaissance era of, of mankind they, they started painting and sculpting you know, it was an artistic you know time amongst the apes and he was going to have a giant orangutan as the pope and it's just and there was um the whole plot hinged unsurprisingly on a hybrid ape human so and this has been kept hidden roddy mcdowell's cornelius or whatever character it was they kept this kind of half man half ape you know evolution quiet because the, the gorillas who were the, still the police force you know were trying to hunt it down and that was kind of the dynamic of the plot and there was all these things about how the statues were all of apes. Yet if you knock them over, they would shatter and there'd be a human statue underneath. So he had the kind of Planet of the Apes ideas. Uh, and that sounded really interesting. It was, you know, except he elected to go and make Lord of the Rings instead. Thank God. A whole other story. Thank God. And he, <laughs> a different path. And then, of course, we got some very good Planet of the Apes sequels that came through Weta and, yeah. and, and Fox. So, so maybe we didn't lose out. But I would love to see those different versions of Planet of the Apes yeah. being made. Oliver Stones, <laughs> that would be like, it's been mad. I'd love to see that. I'd love an Oliver Stone Planet of the Apes. I really like Planet of the Apes. There's a, just just the whole. This, I, I've said before and been ridiculed already that I, I even like the Tim Burton one. Like, well, you know, yeah. I'm the only person in the world, but you know. <laughs> I know what you mean. What I do like, I love the masks. Mm. And I love the masks yeah. in the original film because they're kind of weird and unsettling because the relationship with the actor is so much kind of uh, odder. Mm. So they're not quite monkeys. They're not quite humans. So they're, they're almost kind of a bit perverse yeah. and odd. And that sort of carries on a bit in, in the Burton one. You know, you, you know, it's Tim Roth and you know, it's Helena Bonham Carter, and, but you're kind of looking at it. At Whereas the time you get to the, the CGI versions, and they're sort of beautifully done. And it's all motion capture and all those things. It's lost that weirdness that the makeup brought to it. Yeah. And I liked that, that kind of quality that they had. So, yeah, I mean, Mark Wahlberg's a disaster in, in that in that Tim Burton film. But there are interesting things in it. it it's, the monkey stuff is good. And those were Ian Nathan's Unequal Sequels. Brilliant. Oh, my I God. enjoyed that. Yeah. Any chance to talk about Terminator 2, I'm down with that. Yeah, I think that's a funny episode with 
editing back, it's funny how little me and you don't talk in the first 20 minutes. We didn't need to say anything. It's incredible, isn't Ian it? Just, it? Ian's knowledge is incredible. Like, literally, both of us are just redundant at this point, which is sort of how our perfect podcast works, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. We, we do the intro and the outro, and we just get let the guest talk in the middle. Oh, man. <laughs> it's just... I don't know if you have you haven't read his, uh, the Lord of the Rings book, have you? The new one? Or I new haven't, one? not yet. No. Uh, I'm going to try and sell it now. Uh, it's called Anything You Can Imagine. Peter Jackson, The Making of Middle Earth. It is so good. Like if Lord of the Rings just hit the 20th year anniversary, just gone. If you're a massive fan, get this book. It is so good. It makes you want to watch it. Tell it goes into is is incredible. Especially if you like all the extras that are on the uh, the original DVD and the Blu-rays. It's just. Which I know very that you very much love, don't you? I'd watch all nine hours continuously if I was allowed. <laughs> but I don't. But yeah. And suddenly, someone finally picked Speed 2 as their worst sequel. Very, I mean, it's easily the worst sequel. Or one of the worst sequels, I would say. I'm not sure I'm going to call it the worst, but it's the worst premise. Yeah. Because... Who, I mean, I can't think about what was going through someone's mind when they went, oh, it's called Speed. It's all about going fast. Let's put it on a cruise ship. Notoriously slow. Like, what? You can't make cruise ships sexy and fun and fast, can you? My wife's never seen it, and I was trying to explain to her, but she loves Speed. Yeah. I was trying to explain to her why Speed 2 is bad. Obviously, I came to the point where, Nothing any anybody does. None of the none of the heroes have any bearing on the film whatsoever. Mm. Like they, if they did nothing, if they slept through this movie, it would still pan out exactly the same. <laughs> that's that's basically it. They could sleep through this movie, and it would all still happen just exactly as it does. Yeah, exactly. It's pointless. It's rubbish. <laughs> I've got a list of sequels that I think are so bad. I'm not going to mention them because I. Don't want to put force in people's heads, but Speed Two was on that list, mm. uh, along with some others that we've done. Yeah, absolutely. But I would say it's yeah. definitely in the top ten of the worst ever sequels. I did, yeah. I didn't know how bad it was until I rewatched it for this episode, and that's when I went, went, oh yeah, ah, it is bad. the wor- <laughs> it is one of the worst sequels ever. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. up there with Batman and Robin <laughs> and Alien vs Predator Two. Yes, oh yeah, definitely is. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's definitely in that unholy trilogy. Oh, God. <laughs> and also, just his knowledge of the Danny Boyle near Alien Resurrection film. Yeah, yeah. And we've also got some really good stuff in there about being the head of a magazine, I thought. Mm. Listening back and how you deal with having a Speed 2 on the cover of a magazine, but then trying to not be too harsh about Speed 2 when it comes to reviewing it. I thought that's really interesting. It um, was really interesting, yeah. And thanks to Ian for actually being truthful because you could quite easily give us a, like a, a politic answer to that and beat around the bush and be like, well, you know, sometimes blah, 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 blah. But he was actually, he was honest and yeah, I found that. It was great. Yeah, he was... answered all my questions. Brilliant. <laughs> it was a brilliant podcast. It really, really was. I mean, it was, yeah, exactly what we want this podcast to be like. Exactly. So, Thank you, Ian, and thank you, everyone, for listening. If you if this is the first time you've listened, then we have got loads of back catalogue for you to go back on and pick it up on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts from. And when you do that, if you like what you hear, give us a little review. Um, but you can now give us a five-star review on Spotify. You see. can, yeah, that's new. Mm, yeah, it is, yeah. So please do give us reviews when you, when you listen. We would absolutely love it. It would be great. But also, more importantly than that, 
just tell your friends. Recommend it. If you've got friends who love movies or if you've got friends who just love listening to people talk talk nonsense, just recommend this this podcast to them. I'm sure they'd love it. We brighten up their, their slightly grey and damp January. Yeah, because <laughs> at the start of a new year now. Absolutely. January's always tough. Yeah, and if you want to know more about the podcast, then you can follow us on our social media channels. We've got, yes. uh, we're at Unequal Sequel on Instagram and on Twitter, and we have an email address, unequalsequel at hotmail.com. Yeah, see? Never getting those wrong again now. No. They're all imprinted in my brain, and I'll get them right every time. Yeah. I'll get them wrong next week. You watch. Hopefully. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Uh, we've got a lot planned this year, so stick with us. It's going to be very exciting. 2022. Yeah, please give us a like and a listen. Uh, tell your friends and all that jazz. And I've got nothing else to say, Rich. Got anything to say? No. no okay, cool. It. It's uh, a goodbye from me. Bye-bye. And a, a goodbye from him. Bye. Come on, January. We're going to fucking have you. See you later. Bye. <laughs>